Welcome back to Not Lydia Podcast. My name is Liz. My name is Athalia. Today we are reviewing our very first book and it's called Stiff by Mary Roach. And it is Stiff, The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. Miss Roach gives first-hand accounts of cadavers, a history of the use of shit. <laughs> she didn't talk about shit in the book. <laughs> I wrote it down wrong. We're going to edit this out. No, we're not. <laughs> Miss Roach gives first-hand accounts of cadavers, a history of the use of cadavers, and an exploration of the surrounding ethical and moral issues. Yes, all of those things is what was in the book. So Mary Roach is... Just, just, just for a second, guys, my dog's here. He has horrible separation anxiety because my husband's not here. If you hear a grumble or rumble, this dog's not being abused. He's just frustrated. He's just sad. He's sad that dad is not home. Yeah, his, he's, he's my husband's shadow, so... And I tend to stress him out because even though he has seen me multiple times, he still does not know me. Yeah. So dogs are fun. Just be aware of a little rumble grumble because that's my dog. It's a normal rumble grumble. So Mary Roach actually has a psychology degree, a bachelor's mm. from Wesleyan University. Wesleyan University. It's a lot of consonants in that one. It was. (laughs) Um, But through her writing, she discovered actually a love for science. And she decided to kind of get into more of that. But she liked that she was coming from like a layman's point of view where she didn't have a degree. So when she was writing these books, she wouldn't be writing from like a scientific way. She'd be writing like, you and me kind of discovering this on our own, but she does her research. So there's smart stuff in it without being... Like the jargon. Yes. Yeah, because I've read research papers where you, like you have to read a paragraph like five or six times because you're oh like, goodness. all right, so what does this word mean? What does this word mean? What does this word mean? And that's what I really liked about this book because it was like... Everyday talk. Yeah. Also, I could also find a passion in something else other than what I'm studying yeah. and still come at it in a respectable way of like really just wanting to learn. And that I think that's a saying too, where it's like a sign of intelligence is you being able to explain something to someone not in your field. Yeah, which is super awesome. This book is really great. Yeah, it was fun. It was a fun read. Um, let's give our overall general thoughts. Like, how did you feel? Like you said you liked it. Like, did you like it? Love it? Where are you on the spec? I would say that I I loved it. I would I would probably read it again or listen to it again um, as an audiobook. It was really interesting. A lot of the stuff obviously was things that I would have never even thought about. And so many different facets of like what is done to people after death. Like things that you couldn't even fathom. It was a yeah. great book. And also she had a really great sense of humor. So I would totally read it again. Just to, I can brush up on knowledge for like a dinner party. Like, <laughs> hey guys, you know what happens to dead bodies? I bet you didn't know. Like a little Hannibal Lecter yeah. dinner party scene. Yes, seriously. Like, I mean, what you're eating now is my cousin's tongue. So, <laughs> tell me what it what it's like. I liked the book. I didn't love the book, but there is a specific, get out of here. <laughs> there is a specific reason. And did I say that I loved it? You said you loved it. Okay. I'm saying I liked it. You said you loved it. Okay. I'm kind of weird and gross, though. But also, 
I am not a huge nonfiction fan. So for me to even like a nonfiction book is a pretty big deal. That is true. That is true. I do love me some fiction. You know what though? What's great about this is that it was written obviously about cadavers. It's not about like a celebrity or like a TV star or whatever, because those books can kind of be kind of like annoying. I'm not big on like autobiographies. Sure. And obviously, I mean, I've met a few people who can read textbooks like their books, but I can't do that. No, my dad can. He oh. loves like the DIY books. Good for him. Yeah. I get so No, my boyfriend, Max, he <laughs> definitely reads mm-hmm. a lot of like financial books and like nonfiction kind of, you know, money or he does a lot of um history like ancient oh, yeah, ancient yeah, yeah. history. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm just like it impresses me. Yeah, like tell me about it, babe. I'm not gonna <laughs> no. I'm not gonna freaking read it. <laughs> like, but you tell me about what those Mesopotamians did. <laughs> like don't get me wrong, I love to hear it when he tells me. But the idea of sitting down and reading what he reads Do I'm just not like, believe <gasps> that I will go to the library and check out this book because I will not. I want you to relay it to me. Yeah. But in terms of a nonfiction novel, I will say it is a very um easy read in terms of like it's easily digestible totally it doesn't use complicated jargon she says it almost in a story-like manner which makes it very easy to follow which Mm -hmm. i really appreciated sure she definitely knows her audience she knows her audience isn't someone who's going to want to read this complicated science textbook of human decay yeah but she still you know, works in intelligence oh, yeah. and research. It's, and it's done in a very, very knowledgeable well-researched way. and respectable way. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I really liked that. And I did find a few chapters a little bit dry, but again, that just comes from an issue with myself where it's like, if it's honestly a topic that I'm 100% just like kind of checked out of, it's hard for me to get through. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But on the stuff that I did find interesting, I was totally invested. Sure. I was like, yes, let me read about these dead bodies. Yeah, what do you do with them after they're dead? <laughs> yeah. So we're going to kind of break down this book in terms of um, kind of take it chapter by chapter. There are 12 topics that she discusses in this book. And we're just going to kind of tackle them. Some of them a little bit more in depth. Some of them not so much. If you know, one of us didn't find it as interesting. The other one was going to kind of take the lead on the topic. Yeah, it's great about having two different people talk about things from their own perspective. One of us is bound to like something that the other one didn't. She did cover quite a bit and it, you know, she goes into different ways that the human body is used after death, which is the whole point of this book and how humans kind of view the dead body, basically. Sure, sure. After death, how do you look at the body? Like some people see it as who cares? It's a shell. Mm -hmm. Some people view it as this like vessel that needs to be respected. Yeah. Like, is your soul still in it? Is your soul out of it? Does your soul go with you to heaven? You know, it's touched on, it's touched on in a chapter of this book. So we're going to dive into this. All right. So let's start with uh, the first section and she kind of starts with a surgery on the dead. Yeah, so we start with, basically, she's in a room um, with just a bunch of tables with chopped off heads. Chopped off heads. See, let that sink in to how this book starts. It's really interesting because I think she was there before the actual surgeons were there. And so she was talking to the people that had prepared the space and, like, 
seeing like what they were going to be used for and um an interesting tidbit uh they chopped up the heads of these cadavers so that plastic surgeons can practice surgery procedures but they're not embalmed um because if they were embalmed then the skin wouldn't be pliable enough and it wouldn't react the same way as it as it would to a live body which is really interesting i i never would have understood that or thought about that so they did you know she talks about how they rehydrate the face so that it's still like you know basically plumpy so these people like the whole first part of this book she kind of talks about how it's reminiscent you know just in time for thanksgiving oh god how these human heads are kind of like turkey carcasses or chicken carcasses on these like metallic trays that you would normally find food in. yeah no when so the she food mixed it... with the head imagery was a little it was interesting but horrifying yeah she I described the trays that they were in and like the tablecloth it was like very picnicky it was it's like it's weird it's like watching the show hannibal where mm. hannibal like cooks the people and it's kind of like you're simultaneously disgusted and hungry at the same time dude right <laughs> he sure knows how to cook a liver uh, like all right but um so yeah so she kind of talks about how in this first chapter how each part of the human body is kind of lopped off like when you donate your body to science it doesn't mean your body's gonna stay intact also y'all don't get a choice Y'all no. don't get a choice how no. your body's going to be used. Like, no. oh no, but I want my eyeballs. Nah, you don't get a choice. And so one of the things that like really stood out to me in the first chapter was um, she was talking to one of the practicing physicians and they were saying that some of the body is easier to work on, but one of the hardest parts to work on is when you're dealing with a body that still has its arm attached and you're holding the hand. Oh my God. And so this is one of the quotes where it's hands are hard. You hold them, they hold you back. God, oh my God. So it's that human connection where when you hold a hand, you immediately assume that it's the other hand person alive. Yeah. So you're, you're not sensing a cadaver, you're sensing human. Gosh. You're sensing soul and life. And it was like, it really, she definitely in the first chapter dives into the idea of mortality and this idea of like yeah she's not holding your hand she's like kicking you into the topic <laughs> like this is what it's about Get jump straight in yeah decapitation human bodies um and then also another thing in the first chapter that definitely stood out to me was um surgery practices so you know in this first chapter she starts off obviously in a contemporary setting um and she sees them working on these human heads that are relatively fresh but surgery practice actually started in a very rare way where it's like human bodies were not something that people wanted you to cut up oh no so you didn't have that practice and what kind of cracked me up was surgery actually, oh my god is this the proctology yes, yes. <laughs> I, have that, I have that quoted too because i thought it was so hilarious so one of the things that kind of put surgery on the map as a legitimate medical practice was proctology because the king of france in 1687 had a problem with anal fissures yeah which yikes and had them surgically removed and he couldn't stop talking about the relief he felt i put that he got a super painful anal fistula removed 
and I guess shouted about it from the rooftops. Just Essentially, so... he's like, my butt feels so much better. But they also talk about how practice kind of came about where, unfortunately, it definitely also dives into um, the dynamics between the wealthy and the more poor because practice hospitals were used mainly by poor people. Sure. Like, if you were rich, you went to a surgeon who knows his stuff, but if you were poor, you were going to students. Oh, yeah, and also you knew in your mind either you were going to die or you were going to end up worse than what you were and alive. And they, they mentioned, like she mentions in the book, that especially in those practice hospitals, a lot of what they were doing was purely experimental. Yeah. Like... These were not procedures that had been practiced over and over. Like, this was not in a time period where we had all this prior knowledge. This was simply, hey, if we cut this out, let's see what happens. Yeah, these are where the precedents for, like, the medicine today came from. Yeah. So I definitely like that about the first chapter. That, honestly, when you start reading this book, she jumps feet first. Like, you're in it decapitated heads, anal fissures, <laughs> starting off strong. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> so, was there, was there anything else you found interesting about our first section? Um, I think she mentioned about how pelvic exams back in the day were obviously not done with a lot of grace. Ooh. And it was basically done to, like, an unconscious, unwilling female for people to learn. And so, I wrote down that, uh... Now, medical schools hire a pelvic educator, quotes around that, who allows the students to practice on her and offers feedback. Which is like, God bless you, whoever you are, to like train doctors to not be aggressive and like, you know, just like. Because a quick note, female anatomy especially. Oh, God. The misconceptions and the on education starting from way back when from the idea that women shouldn't even be able to travel on trains because our uterus would somehow travel around our body or uh, that's not that's not how it works guys it's it's set it has its place it has its home yeah it's pretty we're fine <laughs> pretty wild or like another part in the book where it's like uh they believe that the the vagina and the uterus was like its own entity, like a live being with like within the body, like just why my vagina does not have a mind of its own. Or the fact another part in the book where uh, we'll get to all yeah, of this. A, a scientist basically wrote a, a paper about like the clitoris, but there were like dozens upon dozens of articles and research papers done about penises, only one about female anatomy. Like, what? I want to know about my, my body. A white male is not the standard of a human body. We're sorry, but that's not how the way the world works. Yeah, as two females, I would say no. <laughs> like, just saying, I appreciate what science has given us and that we are in a time and place. Like, how blessed do I feel that I can go to a female gynecologist and she understands? But on the flip side of that, isn't there another way to check if someone has cancer than squashing our boobs in a machine? You better believe if there was a tumor in the penis, they would not put a penis in a machine and squash it. I bet you they would. Wish it down. I bet you they wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, it's not about dead people, sorry. But, you know, this book does feature heavily into a lot of anatomical 
um, issues that you see between men and women and they also touch on a lot of uh, Mary Roach definitely touches on the class system of the wealth disparity that has been prevalent throughout all of human history seriously yeah and what poor people have had to do for medical care versus what rich people were offered and I'm not saying through history what rich people was offered was any better because there were definitely examples in this book where it's like even if you're rich and getting quote unquote the best care it was not great it was still 50 50 but if <laughs> if you're rich you're probably not going to get your dead body robbed from it the, the grave yeah to be used for medical experiments we'll also get to that because there's a whole chapter and it is disturbing yeah. like this whole book in the best way possible so then we move on to crimes of anatomy. I think that was basically people stealing bodies from graves and like. So actually, we're jumping right yeah, into this. conducting experiments segue, segue. on dead bodies. And so she mentions kind of in this first part how nowadays there's definitely a respect of the bodies that have been donated to science. So you know, if you donate your body and people are dissecting it, she was like, don't think that they're sitting there making jokes about your body they're not they're talking about it in this like reverence where it's like this person has sacrificed their body so that we can learn and science can move forward that's what i actually thought was really interesting because i've uh taken an anatomy class with the practical part with a cadaver um and in the book they mentioned the university that she was like interviewing students at they actually have like a a burying ceremony for when they bury the cadaver and mm -hmm. like the students go, which I thought was really lovely. Yeah. But my experience with a cadaver and seeing a cadaver for the first time, and it's funny because it was similar experiences mentioned in the book, really? but noticing that the female cadaver had her toenails painted. And I was just like, oh my God, this was the freaking person. Yeah. It, honestly, it hits you. It made me want to cry because I'm just like, holy crap, this was an actual person who at whatever age, was like, well, let me paint my toes red. Again, we'll touch on that later because, you know, there's a whole chapter actually dedicated to this, but it it hits you that this person had, like, a soul mm -hmm. and a life and experiences and they've given their body over to science so that you can learn and it should be shown a certain amount of respect. And we, again, there are more chapters that dive into this in this book. On the flip side of that, I have an anecdote from my... <laughs> anatomy class Tell and it was my anatomy teacher joke. that made this like this joke in a funny way i don't think it's offensive but it is interesting i guess he had a class um and they were you know looking at the cadaver or whatever and then the teacher had looked inside the 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 cadaver of like the woman and was like looking at the uterus area and then looked up at, at his class and was like who spit gum in this cadaver? And everyone's like looking at each other. And he's like, who spit gum in the cadaver? Like, who would ever do this? Da, 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 da. That's so disrespectful. Yeah. Turns out it was her ovaries. <laughs> Which, you know what chewed up gum looks like. So that's what your ovaries going to look like when you're dead. I like, and would I not have expected that. I saw it. And he's not off. Oh my and that's just stating a fact. It's not like he was like, ha ha ha, she has no eggs. It's just, that's what it looks like. That's interesting. And yeah, there's a lot of definitely descriptions of dead bodies that I think a lot of us either willingly or just because, you know, it's not of interest, 
obviously if you don't have interest into what happens to the body after you die, you're not going to look into it. But if you do have interest and you look into it, you might tend to kind of like not think about it. But um, what the human body goes through after death is explored in this book in very graphic detail. I will say to just contradict what you're saying, if you want to donate your body to science, do not read this book. Like, if you're going to do your research, you're probably definitely going to say, nah, let me just bury me the way that I came into, like, the world with all of my body parts. So, I mean, it'd be cool if someone did the research and they're like, yeah, I don't mind that they're going to rip my body apart. But after reading this book, I'm like, okay. I'm a little bit more hesitant, but also in certain sections, if my body was donated in the right way it would definitely help oh yeah you know that your body's gonna be treated with respect and it's gonna like help push science forward definitely the respect the difference in respect that you see from contemporary times to historical times there is a vast difference and i do appreciate how far we've come in that aspect because definitely back then we're gonna touch on this right now actually so starting in about 1836 um, the only cadavers that were available in England, France, Europe, was if you were executed. So it wasn't like you died and they were like, oh, let's take this body apart. It was seen as basically a second punishment. And so if you were executed, you were executed because, let's say, I think the example they use in the book is if, you stole a pig, you were executed. If you murdered someone, you were executed and torn apart for research. And that was seen as, like, the worst of the worst. It was, like, punishment after your punishment. Yeah, like, you don't even get buried first. So you, you're going it, straight to the, like, university classroom the where they can, like, chop you up. The anatomic Anatomists. Thank you. Can't say it again? Anatomists. Anatomists. I can say words, I promise. <laughs> so they they definitely had this kind of image of following around executioners so it wasn't something you wanted it wasn't like you were like i'm proud to donate my body it was oh shit if i get executed they're gonna rip my corpse apart yeah yeah it's definitely it's worse than death because not only yeah. are you dying but there's like no trace no left of you yeah. after um and it's interesting because she brought up a a point in the book which was covered in another podcast that i listened to my favorite murder big ups plug yeah but they talked about the the two guys that basically like like murder people to Mm -hmm. like bring the bodies to the scientists and get money for them oh yeah and she talked about that in this book too and so in my mind the image that kind of came to me is they saw these anatomists as kind of like carrion birds like vultures or something like that, like someone who picked you apart as a disrespectful thing after death. Yeah, like, they were people hired to like scrounge up bodies from graveyards to the point where like families would like camp out at the at yeah. like their their plots just so their their family members weren't taken after like the first month or so because after that point they were already decayed. It reminds me as a separate anecdote again of learning more about Cleopatra mm. and you know there's like this ongoing search for her tomb and it's everybody's like everybody wants to find the tomb of cleopatra and mark antony anthony <laughs> is it antony or anthony it's antony antony mark anthony is the singer i would sing a song but i only want to sing a j-lo song in my head so never mind 
<laughs> J-Lo tangent aside. So, Cleopatra and Mark Antony, there's this huge search for their tomb, but there are some um, historical peoples who are in that world who are like, you're never going to find the tomb because she knew that if she died and the Romans had her body, they would do unspeakable things like parade her through their village desecrate her body like it wouldn't be pleasant also with how they deal with death especially because they view the body as like a sacred thing and they yeah. save your brain and other organs well not the brain actually whatever That's not important. yeah your your, your heart, heart your liver i'm not egyptian that. i don't know Smart. anyway but i would i couldn't understand how she would do anything in her power to not end up like that and so there's this kind of theory where we're never going to find her tomb. She doesn't have a tomb that she died and had people either burn her or kind of hide her body. Like not in a tomb, but just kind of bury her somewhere else just so she would remain intact. So she wouldn't have her body suffer that humiliation. And that's what this kind of reminded me of, of this, you know, idea that even after death, you can still be humiliated. And that wasn't something people wanted. Like, even I, like, I have that, you know, idea of, like, I kind of want my body to stay intact because it's, it's just this, like, you know, I don't even know how to explain it. Just discomfort with having someone meddle with your body after you're dead. And I think also to say in this time period, it wasn't for the good of anything. No. It was just strictly what'll happen if I do this. Mm -hmm. At least now it's like. We're trying out this new surgery procedure. We're trying out this new stitch for surgery. We're, you know, we're giving your organs to someone who's dying. At least that has some meaning yeah. instead of just like, okay, well, here's this another good for nothing criminal that got murdered. So let's see what happens if we let's do poke this. at him a little bit. Yeah. But so this also kind of created this atmosphere of you could kind of sell body parts, and she kind of brings up the point of like if you know, your son or a family member had to have a body part amputated, you could sell that for this week's beer money. Which is so crazy. So depressing. I'm not treating anybody to a drink if it was because of my arm got cut off. Now, mind you, this was primarily in England and America, or the USA, you know, because America is obviously. Mm -hmm. But yeah. in primarily modern-day United States, um, they were trying to get as much many dead bodies as possible because they didn't want to lose their physicians to the Paris academies because mm -hmm. Parisians actually used the bodies of poor people that had died, which again, not great, but yeah, they it's kind were... of like an insult. Like, well, you don't have any family that's looking after you. So once you die, we're going to scoop you up. They didn't have, I guess, kind of a similar reverence. Sure. That it, was, it wasn't necessarily that you were a criminal. It was just you couldn't really afford a burial. So we're going to take your body and kind of... Like, what know, else are you going to do? Study anatomy. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, Britain and England... Or Britain and America kind of had a different view on it. So they were not using the dead bodies of poor people. I don't know which is worse and better. Honestly, I'm not trying to be the morality police. Especially for 1836. Also, I mean, in a way... We, we are where we are because of that. And so 
going a little bit back in time, grave digging really became a thing. I, I think it, in the book she says it kind of started in 1828, which is a little bit before um, the 1836 execution mm -hmm. with the... Oh, so so people were like digging up people's graves, and then the you know government's like, yeah, like only murder people now. Yeah, like let's, stop let's not do this. digging up dead people, bro. Like it's embarrassing. But so anatomists and scientists would pay grave diggers. Yeah, they're they're putting the need out there uh, for this to happen because it turns out it is a crime to rob a grave. So of like, course it you should can't, be. No, I mean like in terms of jewelry and money. Oh, okay. Book, okay. She talks about that. So like jewelry, money, that's illegal to rob, but there was no law saying you can't take a body. <sighs> so people were like... I feel like it goes without saying. Like personally for me, it goes without don't saying. Don't take my body, guys. Yeah, don't... What? Just don't do it. And so in London, the scientists started paying these grave diggers to bring them fresh-ish corpses. Which is why those two guys were like, Burking okay, hair. Yeah, like, you know what? You're close to death anyway, so like, let's murder you. And also the guy that they were selling it to, like, he never questioned, like, hey, this person looked like they died, like, literally hours ago. So there were two gentlemen, Burke and Hare, who made a quite generous living off of eventually murdering people. They were grave digging, but then they realized hey, we can do this a lot quicker, a lot faster, get a lot more money if we just start murdering fools and delivering super fresh corpses. Yeah, let's meet the demand and murder people. So she actually talks about how Burke was caught and hung and then ironically dissected yeah, because he was a murderer. Like literally exactly what you deserve. And so this was interesting in terms of like how we started looking at human bodies. It's almost like you created this demand because mm. you needed to seek out, like, the things of the human body. Yeah. But, like, there was no structure in place to, like, morale, like, morality-wise to, to make it seem okay. So then you went forth with doing this sketchy thing and paying people to do these sketchy things. Yeah. And also, you know, I'm sure people who were, like, you know, grave robbing dead bodies were poor. They wouldn't do it otherwise. Yeah. So, of course they're going to pick up a dead body and drop it off somewhere so they can get some money. So, I mean, it's kind of terrifying. But like I said before, like, we are where we are because they were stealing dead bodies. And even before, or their names, Burke and Hare, before they kind of became employed and before they started employing kind of, I guess you would say, like, criminal-type folks, the actual scientists were the ones going out. The actual surgeons were the ones, these respected gentlemen were going out and digging up these fresh dead bodies. And it was just a little bit too unsavory. I think in a way, if you're so, I guess, passionate about the science that you're trying to like research, I can understand how you would put away the thoughts of like, oh, this is wrong because yeah. you're in the pursuit of like knowledge. Of also, you have yeah. all these students here that are expecting to learn something. And if mm -hmm. you don't have a body to show them with, what's to stop them from going somewhere else? Yeah. All right. So let's take a break here. We will come back in a few seconds. Welcome back, everyone. Hey. Thank you for waiting. Yeah. A bit. Tuning Sorry. back in. <laughs> Thank you for keeping on listening. <laughs> <laughs> okay 
So we're going to pick up now with, um, we're going to breeze a little bit quicker. So that was a good introduction. So you kind of get the feel of like how this book goes. It's definitely like she sets up through history, you know, where we started with realizing that corpses and cadavers would be good for science and kind of the unsavory history. And then she jumps into more um, modern applications for dead bodies. Yeah. And so we're picking up in a chapter called Life After Death. And it's a pretty simple chapter. It starts in the University of Tennessee in the medical center. And this is one of the places where they donate bodies and they basically put them in a field for decomposition. I thought this chapter was incredible. I yeah, I did love this chapter. wrote here like, I want to work here. And I love the other guy that was like with them because there was like, um, I guess like maybe like a guy that like was a liaison, not the scientist guy, but a guy that kind of set up the meeting between the author and the person from the university who clearly totally did not want to be there. He's right. like, dude, I just, I don't want to do it. I want to look at my shoes. I don't want to smell anything. I don't want to deal with it. But it's just basically, you know, the way she describes it, it's just like a, a giant lawn of just cadavers and it just basically observing in different positions in different places yeah like, like in the sun in the shade just uh just to see what happens after death like the stages that your body goes through so basically you know any forensic person can tell okay this person died within 15 hours because this and this and this she definitely jumps to you know this is definitely used for forensic science like and i think that's super cool that we even have fields like this where you know this person has been left out for three hours. Okay, this is what a dead body naturally looks like after three hours. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of gauge from there. like, Or you can tell if a body was moved from the place that they died at because of like the stuff that comes out of your body. I will say though, this is around the time that I started getting a little bit nauseous. Oh yeah. Because she Dude, was... she talked about the one part where like the belly button had maggots in it. It's just like, don't describe maggots as rice. Please don't do that. I think the part that really got me is there is definitely a section where she describes how the skin kind of falls off the body <laughs> and what happens to your eyeballs. <laughs> like basically all the gooey parts of your body. What happens if it's left out in the sun? Yeah. And that was heavily disturbing, but also hella interesting. It was really, really great. If I were to donate my body, I would totally like to lay on the lawn. And the stench. Mm -hmm. Like, dude, like, the stench of a dead body yeah. was horrifying. Yeah, they were like not even close to them, and the smell was like so pungent. And this is the chapter that also kind of goes into embalming and what kind of goes into embalming, mm -hmm. and that, you know, humans have this. You know, you don't, you don't want to see your family members gooey and gross. You want to see them how you remember them. And so that's kind of where embalming takes place. And this includes removing basically all the gooey bits. Yeah. Your eyeballs, suturing different holes to make sure nothing leaks. Yeah, you don't want, like, when people see your family, like, you, you see your loved one who's dead, you don't want to, like, smell death. No. You want to, you know, look at them and be like, oh, they're sleeping. And so this is, you know, where she kind of jumps into that of like after death in terms of embalming and versus donating to mm -hmm, science mm -hmm. where your body is not going to be treated like that. Mm -mm. You're not going to be embalmed. You're not going to stay precious and beautiful. Though she even touches on like embalming 
a lot of people at first kind of thought it was this thing that lasted forever and it didn't. Oh my god. Yeah, I think um, she brought up a, a thing where I guess this this company or this mortuary house was like saying like, oh, your body's gonna stay the same for like ten years, and like it people will not people try to prove it and like you know like dug up their relative, and of course they look like a freaking dead person, and they're like, I want my money back because you promised that they were gonna look pretty forever. Spoiler alert: even with embalming, your body is not gonna stay fresh because you're dead. Yeah, things are gonna things mm-hmm. are gonna happen. Yeah, that's freaking gross. Also, why would you want them to look the same? So that was kind of the summary for that. And then, you know, we move on to specific circumstances of how specifically modern we can use a human body to prevent death. And so she starts with um, driving situation. So the next chapter is dead man driving and it goes into how you can use a cadaver for human crash test dummies, basically. Which is, like, so interesting to me. Because I remember seeing videos of, like, crash test dummies, and you're kind of like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, yeah. it looks like a human. Like, we can see what it'll do to a human. Actually... You can see the neck, and you can see the head, how the head reacts, how the yeah, body reacts. Yeah, but you really don't know anything. You don't know about the pressure that the crash is putting on certain parts of your body. M- parts that are prone to, like really really bad damage yeah and so it's like so interesting the the chick in there is like fastening like uh like sensors to like the collarbone and other parts of the cadaver to basically see like okay what's the maximum amount of force that it will take to crash this this dummy and if we can scale that back what can we tell these car companies that they needed like what 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 point they need to meet but then she also touches on the kind of difficulties of okay, we get certain donations of bodies, but unfortunately there are things that are not easily discovered because it would be easier with a living person. And also, I mean... But obviously you can't just strap a living person into a car and say, hey, we're going to speed you at 80 miles per hour and crash you into this wall. I mean, one thing that you notice in the remainder of the book is that obviously we don't operate in the way that people did in the 1800s, but the demand... For, for cadavers, is still kind of high, but yeah. we have the morality to, to think about. So, you know, a lot of organizations are trying to find ways to, to achieve, you know, research without having to deal with cadavers. And it's, it is difficult because um, sometimes you, you need a cadaver to really know what will happen to a human body. And unfortunately, in this chapter especially, she touches on this idea that they're kind of struggling with, where especially in um, car crash simulations we don't have any child cadavers because i mean obviously i understand and agree if i had a child who died young i would not be like of course use them in this car crash simulation and so she touches on that that they have a lack of child tests so sometimes cars are not necessarily designed for children because how would we a hundred percent prepare for that seriously if you buy like top of lines like a car seat. I don't want to know how many dead children were used no. to make this thing. You know, that that doesn't sound great. And then they touch on, like, the researcher who is kind of in charge of this whole experiment. They only have about a half a day before the cadavers, you know, start to smell and start to decay. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of become useless. And so when bodies are donated, you know, they're kind of donated under this blanket statement of medical research. Mm-hmm that the it's, family doesn't know. The it, family isn't like, 
oh yeah, I consent to you, you know, ramming my loved one into a wall. But it's, it's interesting because I think the guy like broke it down um, as far like ratios and stuff. Like people don't generally ask, what is it being used for? And right. when they do, usually they're like, I kind of don't want to do it anymore, you know? Right. It's it's better to just say, have my loved one's body for medical research. You know, you don't want to know specifically what's going to happen to What that. we're going to do is we're going to slam this head into a wall multiple times and see what happens. And so she, she really touches on that. I think she does a good job of explaining the morality versus the benefits. and But she does it in a respectful way where she's not saying let go of your morality, let go of the love you have for this deceased person. She's saying she understands. Like, she understands that, no, people are not going to want their previous loved one to be in these experiments. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the reason why there are some um, untapped um, regions of, yeah. of research. It's because... It, is I it, don't want my loved one's body to go through that. Yeah, is it worth it in the pursuit of knowledge? To, to see, like, you know, what's the safest for a kid. And it's, you, you have to kind of find that within yourself. It's a fine line. I don't want to make that decision. No. Nope. I don't want to know. But she did put, like, an anecdote about, like, car crashes and stuff. She says, don't worry about sitting in the middle seat in the back without a seatbelt. Because if the car gets hit from the side, the people beside you will observe the impact. So, <laughs> if you value your life... Sit in the back middle seat with people around you. Just don't tell the other people what you're doing. I will say, you know, growing up in a family where there were three of me and my siblings, so my sister, me, and my brother, mm -hmm. um, we always kind of made my little brother sit in the middle because I wanted to stare at the window and my sister wanted to stare at the window sure. and we were the oldest, so <laughs> you're going to sit in the middle. Well, good to know that uh, if you got bullied that way and you relate to my little brother who was always well, no one to wanted in the middle, middle seat. Nobody! But you were most likely to survive, so good for you. Yeah, because that was like that's the only seat that doesn't have like the shoulder part. Right. So if you don't have that and you have people around you, it's all right. Oh, another thing that stood out to me in this chapter that I just found so human was that um, there was a man who created a type of steering wheel. <gasps> I wrote this down too. It was not aesthetically pleasing, but it saved lives. Oh, I didn't write this down. <laughs> oh, yeah. So there was this type of steering mechanism that, what was it, like pedals or something? Like, it wasn't a wheel like we have now. Okay. So when you're driving a oh, car and you okay. have the wheel, okay, okay. you have, you know, your steering wheel, and you get into an accident, you're going to hit that wheel, and it's more likely that you're going to be heavily injured or you're going to die. Mm -hmm. But they had this man that she discusses in this book I'm sorry, I do not remember the details. I do not know this man. I don't know <laughs> his life. But basically, he created this steering device where if you were in an accident, it would not hurt you. Mm. But it was not aesthetically pleasing. So car so companies were like, it. On the flip side of that, I guess back in the day, they had steering wheels that were like basically jutting out from the bottom of the car, like, like, a, like a javelin straight to your freaking heart. So if you got into a car accident, that's exactly where your body's gonna go. And that's why they don't have it, like coming from a pole out of the middle of your car in the front seat, which is like, you think about that now and you're like, no duh, but that's how it was. My husband has a car in the garage that he's fixing up and it's just like that. 
And it's just also this kind of argument that she kind of touches on a little bit in the book where was it better for someone to be horribly injured or was it better for someone to die on impact? Sure. Like if you're going to die on impact versus being basically crippled for the rest of your life, which is better. And a lot of companies were like, well, let's design it. So if they get into this accident, they die on impact. And then the, you know, competing company was like, no, let's let them live. And you basically have these car companies that are arguing whether you are allowed to live or die based on how they design a car. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. It's so kind of dark and twisted. And they also jump into how each, you know, piece of your body is affected depending on where you get hit, depending on airbags, depending on steering. Yeah, yeah I'm scared of cars now. Man, you're scared of all kinds of things. You're scared to die because someone could rob your will body. Give you fear. You're scared of a car accident. You're scared of crashing in an airplane. You're scared of just 100%. a bunch of things. So then we kind of move on, get away from cars, and go into something a little bit scarier for most people. Airplanes! Isn't it? Like, you're more likely to die in a car accident than an airplane accident? But that's only because more people are driving a car like, than they are sh- 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 flying sh- a plane. Sh- sh- that's one of those statistical things where they're like, you know, there are more people who die from cows than they do from coyotes, but if we corralled hundreds of coyotes, then you'd be more likely to die from a coyote. Yeah, it's all about situations. Situational. You're more likely to run upon a cow than a coyote. Exactly. I've seen a bunch of cows. I've never seen a coyote. So the only thing that really stood out, this is one of the chapters where I kind of tuned out a little bit because I was just like, meh, airplanes are scary no matter what. Mm -hmm. The one thing. (laughs) I feel like I know what it is. Guinea pigs. Oh, no, I don't. (laughs) Guinea pigs. Okay. So when a plane crashes and bodies get thrown out all willy-nilly, Scientists were like, where the heck are these bodies going? We can't find the bodies. So they did a test where they took a bunch of guinea pigs, strapped them in like little humans. Oh, God. Threw them about two and a half miles into water. Oh, my God. To see how their bodies reacted. I'm sure they're going to die. That's just the hypothesis, though. So it was testing. You know, they were they were finding these human remains, and they were like, how did this happen to this human remain? And especially with lungs and mm-hmm, stuff, they mm-hmm. were like, this lung is collapsed. How did this happen? So they tested it on a bunch of guinea pigs. They basically sacrificed all these guinea pigs. All I picture is a bunch of these little animals. Poor things. Strapped in a fake plane that they just launched into the water. And they're like, huh, their lungs did a collapse. I guess that's how these humans died. I find fault with that because it's like their whole intestinal whatever collapsed probably. It's a freaking (laughs) guinea pig. But um, on the flip side of that, as far as with humans, um, one thing that struck me was (laughs) like, okay, so if you're falling from a plane and you hit the ground... It's like not the impact that kills you. It's the fact that the organs in your body are moving of their own accord. So you hit the ground, then your organs hit, and then that could end up tearing your freaking aorta. And that's how you die. I'm not okay with that, by Yeah, way. like, is the impact enough? Or your body just saying, nah, and they just like unstick from each other, just like break apart. It definitely, you know, she definitely dives into the different 
ways you die in an airplane crash. Like, internally. And it's horrifying. And then she also talks about how the um, specialist that she was talking to about airplane crashes, she kind of asked him, she was like, where, where do you sit on the plane? And that's what stuck out to me is his answer was first class. Yeah, of course. Basically, there's no good place to sit on a plane no. because depending on what crash, what explosion, where you crash, how you crash. Where you're landing. It's all dependent. So, like, no place of the airplane is safest because... Be comfortable, though. Right. Just depending on where you are, you might die in a different way. You might survive. So, he's like, I'd rather just be comfortable up in first class. So, I have, like, two other things to mention. So, this guy, um, he basically uh, does research on, like, airplane accidents and, you know, observes the bodies and sees basically how they die. And there's one part that I was like, what? Um, When observing injuries of a fatal aircraft accident, be aware that intense heat may produce intracranial steam that can result in blowout of your head. So it looks like something else happened, but it's just because the steam in your head. How wild is that? I don't want steam in my brain. I don't want my head exploding to be confused as something serious when it's just steam. I don't want my head to explode, period. And I think this is where a lot of the fear of airplanes comes from, because... I mean, that's like not the airplane, that's just the crash. Like, you're falling on the ground. That's nothing you can help. Well, okay, but you're in an airplane. Where else would I be that I would crash like that? Skydiving. Fair point, ladies and gentlemen. Skydiving. Another thing that I would never, ever, 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 ever do. Okay, so another part, like a footnote that she put in. Basically, um, increasing your likelihood of surviving a a plane crash. Mm -hmm. uh, Be a man. Because in the study of three crashes involving emergency evacuations, the main factor influencing survival was gender. Males were most likely to get out alive because they pushed everyone out of the way. So, so they don't give a crap about your mom and your children. They're like, I need mine. Men first. Women and children last. If you have a penis, you're more likely to survive. So congrats. So I guess the the moral, that would not necessarily mean be a man, but it would definitely be... Push everybody out of the way. Have less of a moral compass. Focus on yourself. Yeah, like get that little rugrat out of the way. Just mush his face. And then, you know, you get to the exit first. Noted. So... Also, I just don't value my life that much where I would be like, bye. You know, I, I would be helping people. I would think. I freaking hope so. I would honestly say I'd probably be like a possum. you would be a deer in headlights. 100%. (laughs) I think we all, and I mean all as in not you guys, but definitely my family and my friends would know that I am definitely deer in the headlights situation type of gal when I'm in a scary situation. I freeze. I went out for softball for one summer of my life. One summer. It was horrible. I am not sporty. Let's clear that out real quick. Went out for softball, hit a ball. I regret hitting that ball. I wish I had just struck out. (laughs) Wound up somehow on second base. Why? I don't know. On second base, someone else hits a ball. I run. I think somebody catches the ball or something. (laughs) So someone's screaming at me to stay on second base. Someone else is screaming at me to run to third. I'm stuck in the middle between second and third base. I freeze. I stop. Who in baseball, softball, whatever, does that? Froze in the middle of the bases, just stood there, got tagged out. Yeah, like, you My entire a... team hated me. 
Yeah, and so that's how we know that uh, you wouldn't survive a plane crash, maybe. Liz is not athletic or able to work under pressure. I love you, but if there was a zombie apocalypse, you're not on my team. <laughs> you're gonna get us all killed. 100% I do not understand how people have the will to live in a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, like it's- If a bunch of zombies take over, Fine. I'm going to throw myself off the nearest cliff. Yeah, I'm not all, even going to try. It's all inevitable in the end, isn't it? <laughs> I don't want to get eaten alive. Okay? I don't. Also, like, didn't turn on your family. Right. Also, I never under... So, I used to really love the show The Walking Dead, but... You didn't. Well, I mean, everybody loved it. Now I'm just kind of like, meh, it's gone on too long. Not the point. <laughs> but there's this one scene where Daryl, one of the characters... I'm saying this, like, everybody has watched the show. So one of the characters, Daryl, sees people who have hung themselves... Because, mm -hmm. you know, zombies mm -hmm. are killing everyone. And he's like, oh, they're cowards. And it's like, maybe they didn't want to have to run for the rest of their lives. Right? Maybe they didn't want to be eaten. I think it's actually a lot braver to come to that conclusion. Of like, is this worth it? No, yes, Isn't let's that, debate. Like a story about like these guys coming into like a nunnery and he was like, they were going to like rape the nuns and they like jumped out the building, like jumped out the window because they're like, I would rather die than you rape me. That's I am intense. unaware of this story. I think I've heard that. Anyway, uh, definitely not on topic at all. At all. So moving on. So airplanes, guinea pigs. Be a man. <laughs> <laughs> be a man and you will live. Or don't be a guinea pig. So don't be a guinea pig and be a man. Mm -hmm. That is the conclusion we've come through yeah. to survive a plane crash. Yeah. Noted. Yeah. Okay. So then we move on to the cadaver who joined the army. And this chapter just kind of goes into how human cadavers are used to kind of help the military develop certain weapons. And this is another chapter that you were like, eh. <laughs> Check out. Well, for me especially, once I realized, she kind of gets to this point where she's like, it turns out human cadavers aren't all that useful. Mm -hmm. Because one, when you shoot at them, you can't see where the bullet goes without an autopsy. Yeah. And even then... You don't know what damage has been done because you can't see through the leg because you just arm cut it all open. Yeah. And so they use like this fake gelatin. She goes into like this clear gelatin they use that has the consistency of a human body that you can fire weapons into. And it's a lot more useful because you can actually see what happened to the bullet, what happened to the quote unquote body. Mm -hmm. Whereas you can't do that with like a legitimate human body. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a Swiss pr professor that she quotes in the book. I think it was, like, pretty old times, like, not, not current. Um, Theodore Coker. Okay. And uh, he's a Swiss professor of surgery, and he basically expressed desire that his ballistic work uh, with cadavers would lead to a more humanitarian form of gun battle. Um, and I put that, that sounds lovely. But it's, <laughs> I think it was, like, early... Like 1900s, basically yeah. very idealistic, kind yeah. of like, okay, so like we obviously want to put a stop to these people, but we don't want to like freaking destroy their bodies. Yeah, which definitely can't say that today. This guy yeah. was just like, let's find a like humanitarian way to murder people. Like a no, like a humanitarian way to stop people. Oh yeah, basically just stopping them. Yeah, yeah, like a deterrent, not necessarily a like murder. Like a murder, method. yeah. Which yeah. I'm, he's Swiss, okay, not American. Clearly, that says a lot. I feel like he was just like, you know, let's just like make them stop. Let's not murder them. Let's make let's them get stop. them off our board. Like, let's get them off of this war, off of our war borders and stuff like that. But you know, I don't want to murder this entire population. I just want to deter them from attacking us. Yeah. And 
then she kind of talks about like um, how when she went out to the field to actually see these weapons and practice how they're used against this gelatin and or human body, the man she talked to was super excited to talk about the weapons and like, this is my new gun and this is the new bullet. But when she would ask about the effects on the human cadaver, he was very hesitant. He didn't want to talk about the body. Yeah. He didn't want to talk about the actual lives that would be taken from these weapons that they were producing. Mm-mm-mm. And so it kind of touches on the morality there. Like, is would you be willing to donate your body? To be blown to freaking smithereens. Yeah. Knowing that that's the only purpose is like, we tested this new gun. We tested this new bomb. And have a military, you know, they ask for permission, but they don't necessarily do it in an open way. Yeah. They're not saying, hey, we'd like your, you know, family member's body so we can blow it up. It's more just like, hey, you're donating them to research. I think that was a part of the book. I don't know if it was this chapter, but basically um, a woman got authorization from the government to conduct this experiment but they were basically like but you can't use cadavers yeah it's like on on one hand you're like well how the hell will i know like if it's effective if it's not effective but on the other hand it's like you do you know how many cadavers you would have to go through to like come to the conclusions that you need to come to yeah so it's like a very thin line to walk it is and she she touches on that a lot in this book and several chapters she hits on that point of it is a thin line for transparency versus what people need to know. Oh, yeah. Because people may donate their body to science and they're like, I've donated my body. I don't care what it's used for. It's for science, whatever you want to experiment on. But if you go to the family and you're like, specifically, we want to do this to this body, they're going to rescind that offer. They're going to say, no, no way. You're not going to chop my person up multiple times. But if you just say, hey, we're using this body to promote scientific study, then they're going to say yes. So it's that thin line of like, how much do we tell them? How much do we not tell them? How much do they just honestly not want to know? Because some people don't want to know. Like, you don't have to tell me the details. Just let me know they're being useful. But also it's kind of like, okay, so this person that died, they wanted to donate their body to science. It was their choice. So... Do you get to have a choice and a say exactly. of what they want? You know, you're assuming that this person that's deceased did their research, whatever, and they're fine with it. Yeah. So. And so it's, and again, it's something she kind of repeats. It's a, it's a big theme through this book of respect versus knowledge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of how much should people know? How much should people not know? before they're ready sure because there are certain situations where you're not necessarily ready to know what happens to your cadaver yeah like death is enough another thing i found interesting about this chapter um there's a part where a woman named cindy burr she was commissioned by the national institute of justice in 1993 to document the impact effects of various non-lethal munitions and what she basically came to the conclusion of is that Nine out of ten times, these lethal, like non-lethal munitions were lethal. Which is hilarious because now it's more apparent than ever, you know, with all of the riots that were happening, you know, for Black Lives Matters. Um, a lot of people were getting seriously injured. Yeah. And it's like, is this non-lethal? Are they using it the right way? Or should they not be aiming at our face? So Basically, I, I feel like it's non-lethal means you don't die on impact. <laughs> It doesn't mean you won't die later or have severe complications later. It just means, hey, for now, we're not murdering you. Yeah. 
but I thought that was interesting. I mean, I'm glad that research is being done on that, but clearly more needs to be done. Yeah. And again, that draws back to the conclusion she kind of made where it's complicated to find these donated bodies when people don't necessarily want their bodies donated if it means they're going to be blown up by a gun yeah. or a mine or some new military weapon. Totally. And I get that. So then coming off of that, she kind of completely switches pace. Mm-hmm. And we go from this contemporary military, how bodies are used, to, hey, have you ever thought about how Jesus died? Is it real? Is this shroud real? <laughs> Was he hung up a certain way? Let's find out. Because, okay, so this next chapter goes into, it's basically completely focused on Jesus and the idea that he was crucified. I'm amazed that scientists were like, I'm going to make it my life's work to figure this out. Though definitely during this time period, this was what, the 1800s? Yeah, I could get it. Yeah, I, I can understand. Where there was a lot more religious drive in the scientific community, especially. Like, it wasn't science for science's sake, it was science combined with religion. That's what's interesting to me. And I think if you're a scientist, of course you would want to marry something that you're passionate about with the religion that you have. Right. So that would be super cool. So there was this experiment to kind of see how Jesus might have died with this quote unquote proof of Jesus's existence and death Mm -hmm. was his shroud, Jesus's shroud which had blood patterns on it. So Mm -hmm. they were like, how would this shroud have been? How would he have had to bleed for this to be accurate? And so they did these experiments with human cadavers to kind of see where you would have to nail him for one, his body to even be able to stay up on the cross, Mm -hmm. two, for the blood patterns, Mm -hmm. three, for him to actually have died like this. Yeah. Um, Dr. Pierre Barbet, he was the guy that was kind of dedicating his life's work to kind of figure this out. There's one part where he was basically like, okay, I don't have a body, but this guy just like got his arm amputated. So I'm going to try that. And like basically hung just an arm on a cross and then hung like a hundred pound weight on there to like simulate it being attached to a body and like dragged it a little bit to be like, oh my God, would this like make the stains? Because that's inaccurate science to just wiggle an arm around because that's what replicates a body. And the idea was that Jesus actually died from suffocation. Mm -hmm. Was that hanging from his wrist like that, that he would be constantly moving his body up and down trying to breathe because it would be stretching him out and he wouldn't be able to get the oxygen required. Mm -hmm. But they did determine that that was basically false. Which I love that there's this guy whose like daytime job is like something like sciencey, but his like nighttime job is like figuring this out. Figuring out Jesus's death. Yeah, and so he has people that are like into trying to help him achieve this because right. they want to know what it's like to be on a cross, I guess. And basically disproved the fact that, you know, he's trying to like crawl up the the cross to get a breath or something cuz breathing wasn't the issue. Right. It was simply you're left on this, you know, crucifixion without water or food. I'm going to say, though, like, um, I think getting stabbed in your, like, wrist is enough. Right. Like, that, your, your whole body is hanging off of that. I think the pain from that would probably kill me. And so they were, they were just trying to prove, basically, that the shroud that they had was actually from Jesus. Okay, so... It's what um, Mary wrapped around him. Right. 
So would the blood patterns match that? That is like so like it's totally not an exact science. How no. could you predict how she would wrap it around him? Now, if he would, if it was like hung up on the cross and he was hung up on the cross, then it's like the pattern against it, maybe. But this is something she wrapped around him, so I don't understand how that even. Yeah, and I think they were also trying to prove just you know how a body would be able to physically hang from a cross. But I feel like there's enough historical writings about crucifixion. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just Jesus who had been crucified through history. Mm-hmm. Like, there there was a history of crucifixion. I mean, they even did it in Game of Thrones. Remember when Daenerys lost her crap? Oh, yeah. Because of those, like, slave owners? And she's like, you know what? I'm better than you. I'm going to hang you like you do your slaves because that'll show you. Side note, I think they did a really good job on, like, we shouldn't punish everyone for just being you know how society was at that time because she definitely killed everybody but then even the slaves were like hey like you definitely got rid of my job so could you not do that yeah also you're supposed the to nuance they touched on nuance before the show crumbled horribly yeah but <laughs> like so you're supposed to be our savior but you're pretty much exactly how they were still being you a just tyrant. have more power thanks daenerys i still love her and i will die on that hill <laughs> anyway going on yeah but yeah just how it would happen how you would die so that was that was definitely interesting especially if you have interest in the biblical story of everything like that and kind of want to see the more historical and scientific approach to that sure they definitely touch on that that like yes he would not have been crucified through his hands like that is not where it would have happened it would have happened through the wrist Mm -hmm. and there was like a really specific place that she touches on (sighs) that the nail would have had to go for his body to be supported listen i there are like teeny tiny little stubby bones in your wrist and the thought of a nail going through the group of them don't like that it's like terrifying to me it doesn't seem like something that should happen so i will say this is the part of the book where I kind of felt like there was a slight disconnect because it felt a little jumpy to me. It was kind of off. It was a very fast chapter that the previous part didn't hint at all that we were getting to that point. And then the next part we're going to touch on is she goes into how to know if you're dead, which is our next chapter. And it gets into like beating heart cadavers. So Mm -hmm. it kind of goes from this like human bodies used for army and military use. Jesus! Beating heart cadavers. Yeah, like medical purposes. Yeah, it's like military, Jesus, medical. It felt weird to me. But to be honest, I don't think, especially in death, there isn't a like there isn't like a perfect uh, sequential order. You know right. what I mean? So I can understand how. Like, all of these different outcomes, of course they don't relate to each other. The only right. thing that relates is that it's a, it involves a dead person. I definitely think, um, for me personally, like, with the religious aspect, especially, you know, there's a heavy population of Christians sure. in the world. Sure. <laughs> so, it would have been more interesting to me, personally, just me personally, that if this chapter had kind of been combined more with the religious aspect mm-hmm. somewhere later in the book or earlier in the book, mm-hmm. not necessarily bookended by these two very different ideas. Yeah, I can I can get that. Cause I, I get where she reaches into this next chapter because in this ne- next chapter we're going to touch on the um, Yeah, the soul. two of those kind of go together, but the ones before... Because I think the soul chapter, we're going to come up to a chapter where we discuss the soul. Yeah, this is next chapter. Yeah, that those two go well together. But it still wasn't like when she first started the next chapter where we're going to jump to 
from Jesus to beating heart cadavers, um, the soul comes later in that chapter where she discusses the human soul and where different societies believe that the soul is located. Mm -hmm. I feel like that could have been put earlier in the chapter. So there was a bit of a disconnect and that's where I think my mind kind of started to wander because it, it felt disconnected in the novel to me. Like you were like, you know, chugging, chugging, chugging along and then it gets to this part and then it's kind of like, okay, what? Also, as a quick side note, I am agnostic, but I Get have... out of my house. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I have this deep fascination with Christianity and biblical stories. And so with the discussion of how Jesus was crucified and kind of like the scientific approach to that, that was very interesting to me. And then it was kind of like a jarring separation to the next chapter. So that's the all, that was one of the few pieces of this book that I wasn't completely on board with. I think the i what you maybe like the disappointment like at the end of every chapter it's kind of open-ended because you know it's still in the pursuit of science right. but this is something that still hasn't been proven right and it's still i guess a very early kind of discovery period because it's still never been proven right mm -hmm. so to go from something else it's kind of like well dang like how close are we to figuring out what this is <laughs> so, like i was reading about this i was interested yeah so i can i can understand the disappointment and then moving on to something else and it's kind of like no, but this part's not done. Like, yeah. But, like, where are we at? Try and figure this out. <laughs> right. But so we, we move on to uh, Beating Heart Cadavers, which um, in simple terms is basically when you're brain dead, but everything else is still functioning. This chapter was very interesting to me. Also very depressing, it, FYI. Yeah. <laughs> there's, this, uh, there's this term or phrase that they say that you could possibly be in called, like, a locked-in state. I don't like that. Yeah. I am terrified now. Yeah. Basically, terrified. like, you appear to be brain dead, but you're not actually. So, like, your, like, your nerves from your eyeballs to your toes drop out of commission, and your body is essentially paralyzed while the mind remains normal. Normal. And there's no way that you can tell anybody that you're fine. Yeah. They're just going to assume that you're brain dead. And that... And they also, or uh, Mary Roach, the author, also discusses um, in around the 18th century, we didn't have stethoscopes. We mm -hmm. didn't have these brainwave monitoring machines. Like, you couldn't tell if a body was dead or not. Like, sure. you kind of had your best guess. If you couldn't feel a pulse, they were dead. <laughs> or you could be like, what's the seagull from freaking Little Mermaid? Where he like puts his head up against Eric's foot and he's like, oh my god, I don't hear a pulse. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god, he's the surgeon, he knows. The seagull knows. <laughs> yeah, check the foot. <laughs> and so she talks about how basically they were trying to come up with ways in Paris and in England and America, these different ways on how to double check if someone was actually oh, dead geez. and it turned out to be most scientists just wanted to do something kind of sadistic to a body so it was like let's cut their foot with razors let's shove bamboo under their fingernails let's ah! shove something up their butt if you're really alive you would totally jump up and it was one of them was like let's take a hot poker and shove it up a butt and it's like, why is that your first thought? Why is that your go-to? Yeah, that's very strange. I think, ooh, maybe maybe if they, like, put wax in your nose and, like, ripped it out. Because you know when, like, you pull out a nose hair, your eyes tear? Right. I think that would be sufficient enough. Don't stick up. A... Why does it have to be hot? 
Why does it have to be sadistic? That's my only thing. Like, like, a poker is enough, bro. Don't make it hot. Jeez, are you trying to brand me? But obviously, this was not a popular ideology, thankfully. And a lot of people were like, no, if it turns out I'm alive, I don't want to be woken up by someone shoving a poker up my butt or my nose. Yeah. And so they created these things called waiting mortuaries. Mm. These were where you would put a recently deceased person and you would wait several days until the body started decomposing. And that was how you know they were dead. I like how, though, it, they didn't last long because it's like... There was zero, zero people were saved during right? this Right? Like, they're dead, bro. They're dead. Like, they're, they're dead. And I think the misconception came from, like... Um, they used to, like, attach bells, bells to your coffin, and, like, whenever you, apparently, if you're alive, you'd move and the bell would, like, ring. But it's, your body's doing, like, weird jiggly stuff, and that's what's causing the bell to, to ring. So, like, yeah, you're probably dead, especially back then. You were definitely probably dead. Yeah. Fun fact, this is why there were also certain coffins that had iron cages put around them, because they were also afraid of um, vampiric people. And they legitimately thought, this is interesting to me because, you know, obviously you can't see me, but I am a redhead. Mm-hmm. And they thought redheads would turn into vampires after death. Wait, you don't? I'm I just know. kidding. <laughs> I'm so bummed out about that that I won't be a vampire after my death. But so for specifically redheaded people, they would put cages around the coffins with the bells because if the bell would ring, but you were a redhead, they honestly believe that that meant you came back to life as a vampire i mean couldn't you just turn into a bat and just like swoop out like you can't stop a vampire bro iron stops vampires apparently what i thought it was silver no it's werewolves okay and vampires i don't know all the myths get mixed up either way they would put iron cages around certain people specifically redheads just ridiculous do not put an iron cage around my dead body thank you on the flip side of um not the flip side, but, like, getting back on topic as far as, like, the the beating heart cadavers. Um, she mentions that uh, 50% or 54% of families of brain-dead patients refuse consent of donating their heart. Because there's the idea of, like, if I'm consenting for you to take their heart, it would be me that's killing them. Right. Instead of the fact that they're already brain-dead. Which is, like... That is something I never thought about, but I can understand feeling like the pressure of that. Because it's, and this goes into... It's like, but they're they're living. Yeah. Like I'm taking their heart away and now they're dead. And this went into the part of the chapter that I found really interesting Mm -hmm. where this is what I wanted to be discussed more in relation to the Jesus topic, just because I think it relates more, is she discusses the soul and where different societies have believed that the soul resides and there's still this kind of ongoing debate of if the soul resides in the heart or the brain Mm -hmm. um and you know now it's more believed that the soul resides in the brain so once your brain is gone you are gone but there's a lot of people who still don't believe that they still believe that your soul resides in your heart so if your heart is still pumping your soul and thus your essence is still alive. Well, there are patients that have reported feeling contact with the previous owner of their heart. Right. Like, feeling how they felt when whatever happened, where they died, essentially, um, or experiencing their death, or experiencing the things that they feel, um, or even, like, feeling stress about, like, um, this firefighter was 
basically feeling worried that like he wouldn't be masculine enough because he had like a woman heart in right. his body and he thought like his firefighter buddies were gonna like think that he wasn't masculine which is like dude you're alive because of this woman like are you really or or i forgot um who wrote this account but it was like kind of like unsubstantiated where basically like this woman got an open heart surgery and like she was like demure before and then like she got like the heart of like a like a sex worker and then she was like wanting sex all the time and i'm like come on first of all if you're a sex worker i'm not a sex worker i don't know I'm, i'm assuming you're doing this for work maybe you really do like sex i'm not sure but I would think that that wouldn't extend to another person. Like, yeah. oh my god, I'm a sex worker and I like sex all day. That's why I'm a sex worker. Now this person's going to like sex because I was a sex worker. Like, that's like so ridiculous. That's like Freudian logic to me. And she touches on that too, where she talks about how there are certain people who claim that they have these personality traits now, but they're all unsubstantiated. Yeah, like y'all are just crazy. Y'all just trying to try out something new. Okay. Or they had knowledge of who owned the heart before them or they were told what that person's life was like and then started emulating that and was like, oh, it's because of the heart. Mm-hmm. Instead, it was probably more um, like auditory simulation. Also, it's something that your brain is doing to cope with the situation, right? I would assume. Because there was this one guy that was like, Oh, I like I rem- I can see like my like bloody like hands and I was black before and blah 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 and like the person who heart he had was not black. Right. And I'm like I mean like what an interesting experience you had, but it's not real. Right. And it's kind of this like you're you're searching for something kind of in this mystical realm that doesn't really exist, but who is anyone else to say that what you're experiencing isn't real because they're the one with the new heart. Yeah, it's a limited population of people that would experience this thing. So who are we to say? And it's also, then it comes down to, again, she keeps discussing, like, where does the soul reside? Like, Mm -hmm. does the soul reside in the heart? Does it reside in the brain? And I guess the Babylonians actually believed that the soul resided in the liver. How did you come to that conclusion? I was like... Who knew what the liver was? I'm sorry. That's so true, right? Like, I get the brain, okay, because that's up in your noggin. I get the heart because you can feel that beating. And maybe the belly button? I get that because they used to think that that was, like, like the center of, like, the body. Like they, And that's they, also umbilical cords. Yeah, they drew, like, worldly maps and, like, oh, this part's the belly button. It's the center of the world. So I can get that. Right. I get the... Where did the liver come from? I would just like to talk. I would like to ask. You know what, though? It is a very distinctive organ. And maybe it's, it's more very, like very big. They knew about the liver in animals. Mm. So they knew about the liver in humans. Mm-hmm. And they were like, obviously, this is an important organ. Yeah, that's interesting. Very odd to me. Yeah. Is this the chapter where they talk about, like, like chopping the heads off and, like, what happens after? Not yet. Okay. Next chapter. But anyway, so... And then they, they got into this, uh, she discusses that there was a scientist who would weigh bodies after death mm. and say that there was a drop in weight. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, clearly that's the soul leaving the body. So he did experiments by um, <laughs> possibly not proven poisoning a bunch of dogs because through Catholic doctrine, dogs and animals don't have souls. So logically with that doctrine, if you murdered a dog or a dog died. Hey, 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 how did all dogs go to heaven then, bro? 
Why do they make a movie about it? Okay. Because only, they have souls. I only saw that movie once and it made me cry and I never watched it Because again. all of them go to heaven because they have souls. But, Doctor. <laughs> so he realized he did a study where he may or may not have poisoned a bunch of dogs. <sighs> the dogs did not lose that specific amount of weight after they died, but humans did. So he's like, oh, that's right. They don't have souls. Humans do, though. So that was the soul leaving the human. Stupid. But then other scientists came out and were like, no, it's probably because of perspiration. But then other scientists contradicted that and they were like, no, because you're dead, your blood's not pumping, so you wouldn't be losing that. And so it's still kind of undiscovered today why we lose this kind of specific 0.8 kilograms of weight when we die. That is interesting. It is. And she doesn't go further into that, which also I was kind of like, I wish you would have pushed that a little bit Where further. Where is the soul? How, where is this weight coming from, Mary? But then I also recognize that this body is about, or <laughs> I recognize that this book is about cadavers, not the human soul, and my yeah, that's a whole other book <laughs> religious curiosities. So I kind of, I kind of moved on quickly from that. But it was interesting to see that they had been trying to do scientific studies specifically on the soul. Yeah, that is pretty cool. So the next chapter is horrifying. Are you ready to be disgusted? I know, if you haven't already been disgusted. This is pushing the limits because this chapter, the ninth chapter, we're very close to the end now. This one is called Just Ahead. I really did enjoy this chapter. <laughs> I was interested, but very disgusted. Well, yeah, I was disgusted, but it's like... It's just, it's it amazing me. how far people are willing to go. It disturbed my 0.8 kilogram soul. Yeah. We all know you don't have one. You're a ginger. Ow. <laughs> Facts are being spit tonight. So basically, um, a lot of this chapter is based, like, kind of like, okay, so, like, after your head gets chopped off in a guillotine, like... Are you conscious of what's happening? Are you sentient enough to understand what's happening? And also, if you're fresh enough, can you then be transplanted onto another body? So before we get to that point, there's this one account of a French physician who, after a guillotine was dropped on a prisoner, he called out the prisoner's name after his head was cut off and saw that the prisoner's eyelids lifted slowly without any, like, Contractions, basically saying that it was like a smooth movement, like something a person whose head was still attached would do. Right. And then the prisoner's eyes fixed themselves on the scientist and the pupils focused themselves. Do you know how fast I would shit my pants if <laughs> someone's head was like detached and their like eyes were like, chicken. like looked at me? Like, I don't even know what I would do. I just, like, also, why are you spending my last six seconds to do an experiment? I'm dead, bro. Like, let me come to terms. Can I ask for forgiveness first? Shit. But also, do note that these claims are unsubstantiated. Yeah. Also, he probably totally embellished that. There but, was like, definitely it's... this anti-guillotine movement mm -hmm. where they thought it was less humane than hanging someone. And they had this belief that after you cut off a head, the head had several seconds of being alive, technically. And, you know, people claimed that they saw these detached heads chewing uh, the basket. But it was never proven. There was never anything documented. But this kind of started this wave of curiosity of if you detach a head but keep the blood flow going to the brain, 
you're technically still alive, right? Would you rather be hung or guillotined? Guillotined, 100%. Yeah, for sure. I do not believe, like, I am of the camp that I believe it is a swift, quick death. Oh, yeah, definitely. I don't want to be... If my neck doesn't snap and I just have to strangle to death, heck no. I think for the most part, I'm already kind of, like, not mentally there a lot of the time. So I think I could probably dissociate enough to, like, get my head chopped off and I'll be fine. I feel like when you're in a car accident and your car gets hit and you have all this rush of adrenaline, you don't even feel anything. Oh, true, 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 true. So let's say for the sake of this conversation that you are alive 30 seconds after 30 seconds i don't i'm giving, i think it's like I'm, six or something I oh know, my I'm god giving a wide range god that is so long i'm i'm exaggerating for posterity's sake so let's pretend that you are alive 30 seconds after your head has been chopped off from your body and your brain is active i think you would have enough adrenaline mm, to not feel and you would basically be emotionally physically detached also your nerves are being like they're cut so of course you and that's giving an extremely long time frame where again it would be about six seconds so it's about six seconds if you are aware of just like listen it takes me at least like a half hour in the morning to realize like what i need to do what day it is like am i wearing pants Takes me 20 minutes just to fully wake up and even that is like yeah, no, if I get my head Pretty. cut off, it's it's probably as, as good as, like, as painless as it needs to be. <laughs> right, like, just chop it off. Yeah. So, with this... Oh, she... yeah, 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 yeah. I didn't write down any of this because it's like, I don't need to write down, I remember. Because this scarred both of us very heavily. So, there were actual experiments that took place. And this part of the book, I will say up to this point, nothing in this book disgusted me. Like, it was disgusting, and I was kind of like, ew. Like morbid. But nothing made me nauseous. Nothing made me actually physically go, I'm going to have to wait till tomorrow to keep reading. <laughs> this book, at this point in time, made me pause. Mm. So there was a lovely scientist who wanted to keep experimenting with could a head survive without a body if we attached it to another body. Obviously, they could not do this on human beings. So they did this to dogs. So they had a full dog and another full dog. They took the head of one dog and attached it to the other dog. See, but this is like right after they figured out how to like anastomos, yeah. like like arteries and stuff. So they're like, you know what? We can like freaking like sew arteries on freaking anything, man. And interesting in the fact that it did work and the second dog had attached to this dog was alive. Like, why do we need to know? Like, what does, what purpose does this serve? So these dogs were created with two heads then that were both sentient, both alive, both attempting to eat and live and died a few days later. Well, especially the, the one that was attached. Yeah. Like, God. It was like six days. What kind of a life is that? Six days of complete torture. Jesus. So th- this is the part that it, it was definitely very difficult for me to get through because I love dogs and I love cats and I love animals. And so reading that these experiments took place without, like, there was a purpose, but there wasn't a strong purpose. It like, was more morbid curiosity of these scientists. You know, to, to like, be, like, devil's advocate, whatever, I could, I could, I could live maybe with the idea that okay so these experiments took place and they're just trying to figure out how like 
people can do head transplants Your brain. someday. That wasn't the reason, no. but I could live with it being that the decision. And like, don't even get me started on head transplants anyway, because it's like you're putting someone's brain in another body, but your brain knows your body. You know and what I mean? Also, it doesn't. It doesn't compute. It's not a freaking dumb drive. The scientist and the author, Mary Roach, discusses this where if, even if you could successfully transplant someone's head onto another person's body, we as a society still don't know how to fix a spinal column injury. So even if you had another body, it, it would basically... just be quadri- quadriplegic, right? Yeah. It would just basically be so that you could still experience mental stimulation, but you would never be able to experience physical stimulation ever again i mean at that point just be a freaking robot just attach my body to like a robot body and so it goes on further and the scientists started experimenting with monkeys Uh. and they actually did a full transplant where they lopped off a monkey's head and then put another monkey's head on that body and the monkey did technically survive for a little bit but again it was a quadriplegic it was this torturous life like listen this is this this monkey head that's attached to this like other monkey they're like there's no stomach they didn't attach like throats or anything like that it was just the head that was attached that had blood flow that's not living to me and now you will understand how this chapter definitely made me a little nauseous and a little sick to my stomach and this is where my moral compass was definitely like no and I can see from a scientific point of view how this is very interesting, but at a certain point too, you have to realize that these are other living creatures that aren't just here for us to experiment on just to see if we can prolong human life. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting too, because I mean, obviously we're pretty disgusted and it was animals. I'm not saying that it's any less disgusting because it is an animal, but do you, (laughs) the outrage that would occur if it was like humans and i think there was one part of the chapter where i forgot like where the scientist was from but basically he had figured out that blood after a few hours of of someone dying was still like oxygenated enough to be donated to people over here in the states if someone's dead we're not using their blood they're dead but over there he was just like putting dead people's blood in people's bodies and not telling the patients what he had done and it's it's like Again, like the double-edged sword where it's like, okay, they're fine. The blood is oxygenated, but it's the level of like, this person was dead. You were given a dead person's blood. You know what I mean? It's, it's a moral compass issue. Yeah. And, and he was like, well, you're going to like drain the body of the blood anyway. And it's kind of like, well, why do we have these rules in place, man? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like they're dead. Like let them go out with like honor. You know what I mean? And this is definitely, I think, where different people will definitely have very strong different opinions sure i think me and athaya kind of have a similar moral compass where it's like no No, i want to conduct experiments on dogs so (laughs) (laughs) i can't be friends with you anymore bimby (laughs) bimby is her dog by the way (laughs) jesus but so I, I, I can see from a standpoint of scientific discovery and definitely people who are about to die, you know, connected to the rest of their body and maybe they want to live. So it's like, how can we take their head, their brain, their thoughts, their memories, basically um, who they are and keep them alive by putting them onto someone who might be brain dead with a living heart. 
but again it, it comes back to who who you are as a human what you are as a human soul conversation and what does being alive mean to you for me i think the 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 joy and like the purpose of being human is knowing that one day you are going to die right that's a privilege honestly mm -hmm. do you think i want to stay here forever Heck like no. god forbid Things are already not so great. I don't want to know how it's going to be like in 50 years. I get to know that, you know what, like hopefully I check out and like I'll have done my my good deeds in the world and, you know, generations will move on after me and, you know, they'll fix whatever. But I don't want to be around for that. And I'm good. 14-year-old me was the only version of myself that wanted to be immortal. And no way. Just because I was obsessed with vampires. Sure. But I, I think it's a privilege that... We get to just like, you know what? You get you get one life. Uh -huh. You get to live it. You mm -hmm. get to experience it. It's bad. It's good. It's a mixture. Yeah. But I think if you, you have the you, idea that you can live forever, then life isn't as meaningful. Right. Right. And it, it's it kind of comes to this point of, you know, what what are you willing to do to stay alive? And I will say, for me personally, getting to that point, like, if it's between me dying or them transplanting my head onto another body just to keep me alive for a few more years. Let me pass on. Yeah. There's a, there's a dignity and a respect in that, but I can also see certain people who don't accept that. Oh, sure. And that's why like, and that's like... what makes this so controversial and interesting yeah. is that there are so many different opinions. I have met several people who think prolonging human life mm. is, the I think best science, adventure. yeah, science has done a very good job at, you know, making sure that we don't die by the age of like 25, but like, right. you're just prolonging the inevitable, inevitable, bro. Like at a certain point, your body's not going to be making like the collagen that it used to make. You're going to get freaking wrinkly. You're going to shrink because your, your bones aren't producing as much. Decay is inevitable. Yeah. You're, it's going to happen. So like, just let it happen, bro. Like yeah. be okay with the life that you had. And that's. That, especially, like, this chapter, I think, really hit me in terms of looking at death. It's like, uh, I'd rather die. <laughs> yeah, and it, it makes you definitely confront that idea and kind of, you know, differing opinions. And you see these scientists who are doing this, and you, like, I fundamentally disagree with all of these experiments. Totally. But some people completely agree. I mean, obviously, some people agree or this wouldn't be happening. Yeah, he had a group of people that were like, all right, let's do this. Oh, didn't they, um, Mary Roach went with the guy back to the hospital where it happened. And yeah. I'm like, he has, I'm just like, how are you, like, leafly talking about this thing that you did? Yeah. And like, oh, this is the room where it happened. This is the cages. This is where it was. And you can actually, um... Google the pictures of this dog experiment where they attached a second head to a living dog and both heads were alive for a short period of time. It was very disturbing and yeah. the pictures are definitely not safe for work. If you don't want to see that, don't look them up. But if you have a safe curiosity, unfortunately, like I do, you might find your curiosity. You know what? She described it well enough that I did need to look it up. I looked it up because I have a safe curiosity. Okay. All right. And then... Moving on from that into a, another slightly disturbing, but somehow to me a less disturbing topic, Eat Me, Chapter 10. Yeah, guess what that's about. <laughs> about eating people. But 
I liked this chapter because it discussed cannibalism, not in terms of, oh my gosh, we're all starving, we need to eat each other. Yeah, or like a, like a, like a savage, like, um, community that's like, this is all we do, we like murder outsiders and eat them. It was from a scientific standpoint and from a medicinal standpoint. Yeah, like she begins it, um, I wrote it down, medicinal cannibalism in 12th century Arabia. In Arabia... Men 70 to 80 years old are willing to give their bodies to save others. The subject does not eat food, only bathes and partakes of honey. After a month, he only excretes honey and his urine and feces have honey in it. And then death follows, obviously, because there's only freaking honey in your body. And then he's placed in a coffin full of honey. And after 100 years, candy is basically made out of his body. And, like, apparently that's supposed to freaking help people. I mean... If I die, make me a candy stick. No. No, I won't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe it's because I really like sugar, so I wouldn't mind being turned into a sugar popsicle human stick. What's interesting about this chapter is, like, not only does it talk about cannibalism, but it talks about, like, how other parts of your body could was used for, like, medicinal purposes. Right. Because there's one... So not necessarily your body after death, but how you as a living person can produce anatomical pieces excrements could quote-unquote help yeah um another another section uh before hippocrates day physicians viewed the female reproductive system not as an organ but as an entity a mysterious creature so apparently that's why feces was used as a topical application for a prolapse uterus because of its repellent nature so they thought your uterus a lot was alive and that it would be just so disgusted by poop that it would just like <laughs> right up your your vagina again. Do you know how ridiculous that is? Can I like, just please say, don't rub poop on me. If you have a prolapsed uterus, please do not rub feces yeah, on it. Yeah, like go. Please go to a doctor. Yeah, there was like a lot of parts, or like in um, China where um, like a like a person who has like an elderly parent, they would like cut off like an ear or something or yeah, a, a boob. Part of, a part of themselves. There was like a chick who cut off her boob and like made a stew of it because it was like supposed to like give them youth or something. I'm sorry. I love my mom, but I'm not cutting off my boob. I love you, but no. It is kind of interesting. I do like um, this section of the book to me because it kind of made me like, huh, funny how life works out because As we mentioned in our last podcast, um, the second book we're going to be discussing next month is The Joy Luck Club, Mm -hmm. and they actually touch on this. Mm -hmm. They actually touch on this idea of sacrificing a part of your body to heal a member of your family, specifically your parents. And you know what's interesting? Any any other kind of book, I feel like, would make it seem like, oh my god, you see this culture is so disgusting and backwards and da-da-da. It's just like stating it as it is, and I didn't find it like, oh my god, why would they do that? It's kind of like... It's this idea of respect and like they, your, your honor to your parents. Yeah, like they believed this thing because that's what they've believed for years. And I mean, we have our own kind of traditions that other countries wouldn't understand, so it was just like... I, I can't imagine the level of respect someone would have for their parents to cut off a part of their body to help them. Yeah. That is, that's crazy. And so they, they definitely go into, like, this part of the book goes into not necessarily, they do discuss, you know, there was definitely, you know, um, the eating of mummies from <sighs> ancient Egyptians. Or placentas of 
fetuses that were aborted. Which we still eat placentas today. That is still a thing that happens no, but in contemporary what society. they discussed was like, but it was it wasn't approved at a whole other level. Yeah, so she, the author, got like um, friends of hers to go to like a like a hospital and be like, "Hey, like you got those placenta pills?" And the the nurse person was like, "Oh yeah, no, we don't do that here. We send them to another place." we don't we don't do that like you can't get them here and right. so she went to another place and they're like oh okay so you need it for your skin okay let me let me give you these this fetal placenta pill and it's like yeah. so y'all are still doing it though yeah like y'all are still doing it and do these women know that their placentas are being used for pills do they get any kind of money and it, it touches on again i think it all comes down to consent and knowledge sure where is like i said like i have known several women who have consumed their own placentas. Did your sister? Yeah. Okay. In pill form. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't seem as bad. I'm not making freaking lasagna out of it, though. <laughs> right. There, There is... Or this couple on My Favorite Murder Again, they mentioned a couple who sent their, like, placenta down a river as, like, a Viking funeral. And it, like, rolled up on a family that was, like, chilling at the lake. It's like, um... I don't want to see your placenta while I'm having a picnic not, in the lake. dude? My children are here. But there is um, a method of dehydrating the placenta mm-hmm. in capsule form, and you take it after pregnancy and after birth, and it's supposed to have um, different properties for healing and stuff like I that. I just, I mean, like, it's great and everything, but I feel like I'm good the way I am, and I don't think part of my body's going to help that. <laughs> I'm good. And it's, I think there is scientific study into it, and, you know, there is this belief and certain researches that have been shown that it does help with mm-hmm. things like postpartum well, depression. Eat their placenta, yeah. so. And I think that's what it stems from, is that it happens in nature, so why aren't humans doing it? I am not going to eat my raw placenta. I'm good. Yeah. But this chapter, I think it, it humanizes this idea that different cultures have consume different parts of a human body yeah we've all somewhat participated in in something that's like this it might not have been like a honey 100 year old man but i mean if you're eating placenta you're eating a person yeah so it's this you know medicinal cannibalism Mm -hmm. that it's almost like that makes it okay because it's like for it's medicinal no no there was one where it's like oh if you have like a gunky eyes then like get a virgin to spit in your eye or something like that where it's like um that was a little bit ridiculous just don't hock a loogie in my eyeball please i think it's it's gonna be worse after that she also talks about how you know certain things were used and they may not have understood necessarily the science behind it but they obviously realized, not if you're putting poop on a prolapsed uterus but they realized certain things worked but it wasn't necessarily i think i know what you're talking about where it's like the two weren't related but doing one thing ended up causing the other thing to right. be cured I forgot the example, though. So it it pushes forward in this um, section of the book. It pushes forward this idea that, you know, it was kind of this trial and error time period in humanity Mm -hmm. where we didn't necessarily know what we were doing was right or wrong. But, you know, three out of eight examples worked. So it kept working. Yeah, it's like, hey, you know, poop scares all of us. (laughs) Why wouldn't it scare a uterus back into your body? (laughs) That example still cracks me up. It's like hilarious to me but so and then we move on to our final two chapters and with this it moves away more from um what 
we do with cadavers and what we do with the human body and kind of what happens in respect to the human body after death in terms of burial, cremation, things like that. Mm-hmm. This chapter, I loved. It was very interesting. There was, I think the first chapter was basically like this lab that like basically has a machine that digests like right animal like like bodies and like dips them in like a vat of like lye or whatever and it like dissolves it enough that all you're left with is like like pieces of the bone which i'm like that's pretty freaking awesome you can like digest a whole horse and then like all you're left with is like uh uh, but what remains is a pile of decollagenated bones that can be crumbled with your hands. Right. And it's called tissue digestion, which is very interesting. And then they also discuss this method that back when this book was written, it was still something relatively new. Oh, is it the Suzanne chick mm-hmm. from, oh my God, I would love to do that. So basically what happens is after you die, you can have this process where you're essentially freeze dried. And then you were shaken into multiple pieces. Yeah, like, because you're freeze-dried, like, you're shaken at a certain frequency that, like, kind of shatters you apart. You, you shatter, and you become this fertilizer, and they can use this fertilizer to grow a certain bush or a tree. Oh my god, I would love that. This is just, like, the best part of the book where I'm like, right. I want this option. <laughs> and you can actually test the bush or the tree to see that the fertilizer is actually promoting the growth in this plant life. And so, essentially, you're like this living coffin. Yeah, it's really cool, too, because it was still being kind of experimented on uh, when, you know, the making of this book. And she was still, like, doing panels with other, like, crematorium places to basically say, like, this is why you should... Trying to get their unions on yeah, their side. Yeah, this is why you should use this as an option to your customers, you know, let right. them know that there's other options. But she had, I guess, experimented with a with a body and she had like a bush on her her like property that um was growing from the the process of uh basically freeze drying a body and you know it was growing lovely so i'm like that's pretty freaking awesome her name is suzanne wieg masak and she's a swedish biologist entrepreneur and so this book was published in 2004 yeah and i'm i meant to look it up to see like where we're at with it but like i'm like ooh, i want that Right, and it became this idea of, you know, you wouldn't just be in this, you know, several thousand dollar coffin casket embalmed in the ground. You could actually, in a healthy, safe manner, be returned to Earth. Yeah. And kind of be used to stimulate growth and, you know, life. And that definitely was a positive for me. And even, what was her name? Suzanne. Yes, Suzanne. Suzanne. Um... Mary Roach went to a conference with Suzanne and watched how she kind of swayed opinion that this was the way to go. This was the new best thing. But there is a lot of pushback from mortuaries because obviously, you know, they're, they're a business and they want you to be paying for, you know, your funeral service, your caskets, your flowers, yeah. like everything that goes into a funeral. You're going to burn them up? You're going to embalm them? What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. There's this money that goes into it. And unfortunately, you know, capitalism kind of runs the world sometimes. So, but the, this way of doing it was more... Humane. Humane it, and green. And yeah. I don't know. It, Ecological. It, and, uh, it felt right. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. It felt better than being in a box. Because like, 
what is it? Um, back in like I don't know, like the eighteen hundreds, whatever. Like where they would have to like dig deeper holes to like stack bodies on top of bodies. I'm like, eventually, I feel like things are gonna end up being like that. The world is huge. We have a lot of people. You right. know what I mean? Like, eventually, we're gonna have to figure out some kind of way to deal with that with the bodies. And, and if I, it's something that can help the world and help the earth and that's all I want. Oh, yeah. I totally want an eco-burial, for sure. Like, right. this was the one part where I'm like, I want this option. And so that's that's kind of where she ends it. And then she ends the book kind of with her own views on death and what she wants to happen to her. Now, this... <laughs> I actually kind of like this. This is like a recap of, like, all of the sections. Like, would I want this? No. Would I want this? No. Would I want this? I kind of... I actually enjoyed her take on it. The only thing that made me I guess squint my eyes a little bit okay and kind of like hmm, was in, Mary in the beginning of the book she kind of makes this statement where she doesn't blatantly say it but I personally got a little bit of a vibe that she viewed people who didn't necessarily donate their bodies as slightly selfish mm-hmm but then she talks about... I mean, the whole book is basically saying, like, this is why you should. These are all right. the good reasons that it's being used for, so I can understand that. But then she talks about how she had wanted to donate her brain. Oh my god, yeah. But then when she found out that her brain wouldn't be in this aesthetic jar, but instead kind of cut up and put into different Tupperware, it's she like you're gonna be yeah, You're going to be in a closet somewhere where someone's going to forget you. And it was kind of this idea to me in my mind where I was like then you can't really guilt people because if the only reason you're donating parts of yourself is to have this aesthetic death, then you shouldn't fault other people for wanting a similar aesthetically pleasing death to themselves. I think in a way, um, unconscious of like what we, we intend to do, we fantasize the idea that our death will have an impact. Right. So Definitely. if you die, you donate your organs, you're going to donate it to someone who's like a great person. You can donate it to a freaking rapist or a murderer. You don't know. Right. The person studying your body in an anatomy class is maybe studying how they can like cut up a body and like, you know, get away with murder. You don't know. So yeah. it's like, I think the idea that it's going to be like this lovely walk in the park and everyone's going to be like, oh my God, what a lovely brain. Like that's like, that's not going to happen. It's a, it's a little bit of... It's idealic. And ego. And naive. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's definitely this your legs, grandiose idea. Yeah, your leg's going to get shot. Your body's going to get smashed in a You're car. You're going to get ripped apart. Yeah. Each part of your body is going to someone else. We I didn't will... really talk about it too much, but there was another part where, you know, she talks about um, human body museums where mm-hmm. human bodies are kind of slit into different pieces and displayed. Oh, I've seen that exhibit, Bodies. Oh, I wanted to. Yeah, I think they, like, soak the body in... Oh, I forgot what it is. It's, like, some sort of, like, silicone kind of thing yeah. to preserve it. It's very interesting. Yeah. And, um... So, I, I found that a little hypocritical. I mean, nothing against her, obviously. I you really... know what, though? Maybe she really did write it in a sequential way. Where, right. like, now she's like, nah, I'm nah. good. And, you know, you can't fault a person for that. Sure. I mean, after... <laughs> Seeing the cadavers in my anatomy class, I don't want to be a cadaver for a freaking anatomy class. I'm not saying that, you know, they're being treated with disrespect or anything. It's just that... That's not what you want for your body. Looking at that body and knowing, like, I just... Not that it's not respectful. I just... I don't 
want to look like that. Yeah. I don't think. Just donate my organs. Stuff me to make sure I'm not saggy for my funeral, I guess. But I don't want to be a cadaver for anatomy. I don't want someone to get yelled at because my ovaries look like a chewed up piece of gum. And I, I think, too, that that's why I did really enjoy this book as we come to our, our final thoughts of this book. I enjoyed it because it makes you kind of step back and look at your own opinions and ideals of what happens after death. And even if it disgusts you, you kind of come away with this, like, let me weigh the options a little mm-hmm. bit more. Like, mm-hmm. would, you know, I'd rather be put in the ground or would I rather have my body donated and there's a 60% shot that I could be useful, but a 40% shot that I could just be used for something kind of superfluous. Mm-hmm. Your head's going to be attached to a monkey's body. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Your arm's going to be used to figure out if the shroud was real. So, you know, coming to our conclusion, I enjoyed the book. It definitely made me speculate a little bit more. It definitely made me decide that I would never be a mortician. Okay, so on a scale of 1 to 10 feces-covered prolapse uteruses, <laughs> what would you rate this book? I give this book seven feces-covered prolapsed uteruses out of ten feces-covered prolapsed uteruses. I would give it, um, um, I really can't think of anything to improve it on, I guess. I'd give it nine out of ten feces-covered prolapsed uteruses, only because you did bring up the part of the shroud, and I kind of wished... That was kind of like concluded at least. Pushed forward a little bit more. Because all of the other sections were kind of like, okay, this is like pursuing knowledge. This is something like it's been centuries. Yeah. And I'm like, damn, we're still not close. Like why (laughs) even put it in the book? You know? And it's, there were certain sections where I felt like it just, again, purely my opinion. It just wasn't that interesting to me personally. But I also understand that that's purely me. You know what, though? What I appreciate is that she didn't go for just the parts that were just shock factor. She did a plethora of a bunch of different situations. Mm -hmm. And she could have just as easily been like, Oh my god, this is what they did in Arabia. Oh my god, this is what they did in Europe. Ew. Instead, she was just like, Bam, 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 bam. These are all the options. And this is, you know, factually what yeah. happened, what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, she she definitely looked at it through a lens that I appreciated where it was like... Definitely objective this... and non-biased. Yeah. And, and she did add her opinion, which I also liked, where it was like... She would say, like, I personally find this gross or, you know, this, disgust... <laughs> this disgusted me. But she would also um, respect it from a scientific perspective standpoint Mm -hmm. and I really did like that and I I like the historical context of where we kind of started with seeing human bodies and discovering anatomy Mm -hmm. and you know cutting humans up and how that even started and I really enjoyed that um yeah there there was a little disconnect for me but I think that also has to do with my own personal interests where you know there were certain sections where I personally just wish they had gone on a little bit longer and there were some sections that I just found kind of dull to me personally where I was just like I could have lived without this but you know that's again other people are gonna find those sections very interesting and would probably be like well why is this soul stuff in here I don't care yeah I think it's interesting too because you know when people think of death and what happens to your body after and donating your body to science you're automatically thinking of these like different things and so for her to talk about 
obviously like cadavers being used for munitions and aircraft and blah 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 like if your mind didn't already go there you're probably just not going to be interested because that's not what your mind thinks about right so right. I, I can understand that too and i mean at least now you know if you're gonna research cadavers what sections to look at <laughs> or if you're gonna donate your body at least you now know what is gonna happen to your body yeah it is not a glamorous glorified thing like sometimes your body is gonna end up in compromising ways yeah what so definitely not you're not gonna donate your body i i personally have never been of a mindset of wanting to donate pieces of my body that just has to do with my own personal beliefs of she touches on it in the book and i have my own section for just me personally where i have an idea of my soul and what will happen to my soul after death and so donating bits of myself has just never been but i am also of the idea that I'm not willing to donate my body parts, so if I got into a situation, I would not expect any body parts to come to me. I think I, I wouldn't mind, obviously, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't mind donating my body. I'm a donor, you know, on my license. But I think what's interesting, you know, talking about the soul and everything, like, I feel like if I didn't have a brain, I wouldn't be who I am. No, you know what I mean? Not. I wouldn't have my memories. I wouldn't have my thoughts, my personality, nothing. You wouldn't be you. Yeah, so there is nothing in the world where it's like, we're going to donate your hippocampus to someone. So I can live with the idea that someone's going to have my heart. It's just a muscle. You yeah. know what I mean? So I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah. So it's definitely is kind of makes you reflect on yourself and your own beliefs and your own ideology, but it does it in a way that is not aggressive and it doesn't force you to change your own belief system, which I appreciate. Oh yeah. I've read a lot of books where it's just like heavily hammering one opinion. You're like, wow, how did this get published? Yeah. And it's definitely, you know, one-sided where this, it, it encompasses all beliefs, all systems, and she does it in a very respectful manner. And mm -hmm. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. I liked that. It was a, it was a very great book. I highly recommend it. Yes. So we definitely agree that we recommend reading Stiff by Mary Roach. So Ooh. if you haven't already, check it out, read it. It is nonfiction, but it definitely has a lot of information. If you are easily grossed out, maybe skip this book. But if this is something that kind of interests you already and you have that interest in death or cadavers or mortuary science or anything like that, check it out. Yeah, I definitely, definitely recommend it. It was great. So thanks for tuning in this week. Thanks. This was Stiff by Mary Roach. Woo. Next month, we're going to be reading The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye.